Thanks a lot, Kev. <laughs> All right. Good morning. My name is Kim Ronslaven. I'm glad to be with you here again. Um, this is, well, as far as I know, the last time I might be speaking you, with you through Romans. So if you can only get one passage of Romans, this would be the one to get. This is the one that Martin Luther, the founder of the Protestant Reformation, called the most important scripture in all of the Bible. There's another pastor named Martin Lord-Jones, who's a great thinker, a great preacher. You can actually hear some of his sermons online, though he's passed away now. And he called this the most crucial, the most important passage in the Bible. So if you're going to get one, you might as well get this one, and no pressure as I try and convince you why this is so. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We'll start in verse 21. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, which is what we've been learning, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace by his grace, and then he says basically the same thing, as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness in the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So that what then becomes of our boasting? Well, it's excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? No, of course not. Of course, he's also the God of the Gentiles also. For God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do then we overthrow this law by faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. There is no distinction, Paul says, and Dave and I have been hammering, if nothing else, home to you. We've been trying to hammer that very message home to you. There is no distinction before God for any person who has ever lived. If you feel like you were raised inside the church, that's who Paul would call like a Jew. This is the people who know God, who know about God, who know about the ways of God. I ask you what sin is, you can tell me about it. Problem is, despite all you know, you're still living a self-seeking life. You are still disobeying the truth, and the same wrath and fury is headed your way as headed to any Gentile out there who couldn't care less about God. There's people out there who proclaim they don't care about God, who are living lives in absolute just depravity away from God, and you are facing the very wrath and fury they're facing. And then Dave hit last week at the beginning of chapter 3, just in case you think, well, I'm not in either category. I, I mean, I, I know some things about God, but I wasn't really raised with God, but I've been really trying hard. I've been trying to do good things to make up for it. And you saw the Trump video where he's, I've never asked God for forgiveness. I, I just try and do, the, do better the next time, just try and make up for it. And at the end of that, you hear the same thing, which is no one's righteous, not even one. There is none who follow God. There is no one who seeks him. Together, they have all become, and then he used a really important word, 
worthless. Everything that anyone in any of those groups brings to the table is worthless. This is how God chooses to start this glorious book of Romans, and it is exactly opposite of how any of us would start anything, especially in today's age. You are told about this self-esteem, think well of yourself, don't be so harsh on yourself, don't be so harsh on others. Like the catchphrase of the last 10 years is don't judge me. And here comes God having Paul start in chapter 1, go all the way through 320 with nothing but judgment upon us. But we have to understand, guys, that God set it up this way because this is the way the gospel works. God who designed not only us, but designed this very gospel, designed it in such a way as it only penetrates when you come to the end of yourself. There's a great Scottish theologian named Sinclair Ferguson I love to listen to. And the way he puts this part right here is that what God has done for us is to argue us into silence, bringing nothing else to him. No other words for ourselves, no other words of defense. So do that. Start there. Don't gloss over your sinfulness. Don't pretty yourself up. Understand that your sinfulness and facing it is actually the beginning of hope for you. Because here come these words, starting in verse 21. But now. Those two little words ought to be the words you're sitting on the edge of your seat to hear. But we're usually not. We're usually actually not thinking that much about our sinfulness, not thinking about us, not thinking about eternity, not thinking about our lives. So that when we hear, but now, there's no wonder anymore. There's no amazement. Which is why we have to keep going back to chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through 3, verse 20. If you see yourself and understand that even your good works are nothing but filthy rags, all the sins that you've done, all the depravity that fills your heart, even knowing all you know about God, you're still living self-seeking lives. Your dreams are about you. Your goals are about you. Every word, every fantasy you have is about you. Then you will understand your bondage to your sin and to your flesh and to the world and Satan that would deceive you. But now, apart from works, apart from the works of your hand, the righteousness of God has been revealed to us. You don't have to fear staring at yourself anymore. For God has just declared in this passage that he is both just, he is right and true, but he is also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the most glorious news in all all the earth if you're ready for good news. We have to understand what this under what this word just and justify right and righteous mean. And the really the thing you need to know is that when you're reading through this passage of scripture, you're seeing all different words just, justify, right, righteous. The truth is they're all a part of the same word family in Greek. They're all a part of the same thought pro, thoughts in Greek. And this is what they mean. For God to be just means that there is a standard of rightness. There is something that is right to do, think, feel, that is good and, and right and true and highest. And God is in accord with that standard, 
which is himself. He is the right one, the good one, the one who does right in everything he thinks, says, and does is perfect, which makes him just to be right, to be just, to have the highest standard. So there's where God is. Everything he thinks, says, and does is perfect. And he does according to it in everything he does. Not only in what he does, we forget that he's right. Not only in like doing this to us, so today, I actually, it's a miracle that I am well enough to speak to you. I thought on Monday I'd have to cancel. We've had a series of illnesses in our home since Thanksgiving. None of us have been well since Thanksgiving. He is not only right to give us all of those illnesses, but to give us the intensity of them, the tone of them, the length of them, the duration of them, the depth of them, all he does to me is right. That's what it means for God to be righteous. All he does is right, but we have a problem because then we have me, and I'm not like him. Everything that I do doesn't accord with God's right standard. Everything I do doesn't accord with the righteousness of God. There's us. So the problem is set up here. God can be just, or he can be with me. How is it that a God who has the rightness of himself, who does right according to all of his ways, he can't just abandon that. If I tell you that I, I met someone and oh, he just loves justice. I mean, he hates injustice. He is spending his entire life fighting against injustice, you know, mentally and emotionally. He just sits in his room and he just thinks about injustice. And he fights in himself and he just hates injustice. He never actually goes out and does anything about it. We would say, well, the guy like has some high standards, but he doesn't actually do justice. God's requirement to us in his law is that we do justice. You know why? Because God is a God who does justice in his world. So how is this just God going to be with people like Abraham, people like David, the adulterer, people like you? People like me, the chief of sinners, how is he going to be with us? Because make no mistake, from the very beginning, God has found a way to make a place for himself with his people. When Adam and Eve sinned in that garden, they didn't go search out God. God came to them. Abraham is just living in Ur, called Abram, minding his own business. When God called him out and took him to a place he had never seen. God's people are in slavery in Egypt, and God sends them, goes to them, God sends Moses to them to rescue them, to bring them out into the desert to himself, to create for himself a people for his own namesake. But how could he do it and not care about the fact that those people he brought out of slavery are worshiping cows, whining, complaining, rebelling, disobeying, how could he do it and not care about it? And the truth is, in that desert, he gave them a hint, a way that would point forward to what he was going to do. He had them build a tent, and inside that tent were these smaller rooms, and around that tent is this, like, wall of cloth, and he told Moses how to create this sacrificial system. And every day, day after day, when that tabernacle, that tent was erected, God would send, it's just ridiculous to say this out loud, God 
would send himself, the creator of the universe, to dwell in a room in a tent to be with his people. But they couldn't get there without sacrifice. Every day, day after day, times millions of people, times millions of animals, they would hear in this camp the sound of slaughter, the animals crying. They would hear the smell, the stench of blood. In the desert heat, I want you to picture it, the heat of the desert on blood poured out. The gore of all of the entrails poured out upon the ground. See the sizzle of the meat on the, on the burnt offering. See the smoke rising continually through the air and see a river of blood flowing out of that inner room and flowing away from that tent. God gave him a hint. There would come a time when only blood would make the way. But guys, despite all of those rams and bulls and goats and pigeons, year after year, millions upon millions upon millions of sacrifices, guess how clean that got them? After your 100th sacrifice, you brought your 100th ram. Guess how clean you were? None. You made your 1,000th sacrifice. And guess what happened in you? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Because the blood of animals could never appease the wrath of God. It was never meant to. That wrath could only be appeased one way. And it would come, Paul just told us, apart from the law. Apart from the law came these 13 words in verse 22. Know these. The righteousness of God is what was required of us to be with God. And now, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all who believe. These 13 words are the miracle of the Bible. If you memorize no other words in all of Scripture, but you have this, you have the key to every other scripture in the Bible. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe is the miracle that Martin Luther saw. It's the miracle that makes this the most crucial passage in the Bible. 13 words. How would God make us his righteousness? Well, the answer's too easy, isn't it? It's the Sunday school answer. It's the answer most of you have been giving to everybody for 16, 17 years. Jesus, right? How did God make a way for us? Jesus. Problem is, it's so, it's so easy for you. It's so light for you that you forget what you're saying. You don't understand what, what you're saying is that God did not set up another way. What God chose to do was to give you to give you his righteousness, he gave you the righteous one who had never known anything except perfection and love and comfort and satisfaction and glory and honor and praise and majesty and riches is now going to be humbled by himself to become a baby. He's going to be frail. He's going to be weak. He's going to be 
born, he's going to be knit together. The Holy One, the righteousness of God is going to become us, human, fleshly, and not flesh that you would think anything about him. Isaiah 53 tells us if he walked in the room, there's not one of us who go, that guy would make a really great king. In fact, Isaiah says he has no beauty. He has no form. No one thinks anything about him. He was despised. He was rejected. His own hometown couldn't care less about him. The religious people mocked him. The crowds just wanted to use him. And his own family, his people who grew up with him for 30 years, his brothers, his sisters, even his mom. You get to Mark chapter 3, verse 21, and Jesus is inside of a room talking to crowds. And his mother and his brothers and his sisters come to the outside and tell them, tell Jesus to come to us, for we know he is out of his mind. You go in 30 years from a woman who knows you got pregnant by a miracle of God to someone who doesn't even believe your own son is anything but insane. Jesus wasn't anything, guys. He was someone so dismissible that even his own mom could dismiss him. Even his own brothers just told him to go off and die in Jerusalem in John chapter 7. He's a nobody from nowhere for you. By the time he hits the end, he is naked and shamed. He is mocked and scorned. He is tortured, crucified, dead, and buried in a borrowed tomb. He doesn't have anything. That is the righteousness of God revealed to you. That is how God, the just one, made you just by sending himself in the form of his son to become you to stand in your place he stood condemned for you that's the glory of the gospel that's the righteousness of God revealed that's what did what nothing else could do that's the blood that flowed that replaced every other blood upon that has ever been spilt by any sacrifice Jesus Christ. And here's what you need to understand. God will never be untrue to that story. The wages of sin is death, and it will come to you one of two ways. You will either die or you will die in Christ. You get one or the other. There is no separation from this. I don't care whether you came last night from seeking your own pleasure or you came last night from keeping all your good rules whether you were memorizing chapter three of Romans or whether you were spending your time, your money, your energy, your thoughts on you. Both of us have one shot at this because the righteousness, not a righteousness, not a way, the righteousness of God has been revealed in Jesus Christ. But how does it come to us? This is the part I feel like we miss. And because you miss it, Every other part of your life in Christ has gone off. If you think of yourself as a believer, understand that it comes by these two little words that he said over and over in this passage, by faith. It comes apart from the works of your hands by faith. But if we say faith, and I say to you, look, what does that mean? And it's one of those words we're all spitting out, but none of us actually know how to define this thing because it's conceptual, 
it's hard to get your hands on. So I'm going to try, but we're going to try by starting to understand this. It's two things Paul tells us it is not. It is apart from the law. It's apart from the works of your hands. Faith and the works of your hands have no place with each other. They are not the same thing. Works of your hands flow from faith. They are not a part of your faith. They flow from it, not a part of it. The reason this is important is because once you become a believer, you can start to actually think that what you're doing for God matters. Whether you tithe or not, whether you're baptized or not, whether you take the Lord's Supper or not, whether you're reading your Bible or not, are you praying or not, are you patient, are you growing in righteousness and holiness, are you being more kind, are you being more happier with everyone, are you an encourager of people, are you critical of people? All of these things that we do with our hands and our bodies, we actually think changes the relationship with God. It is by faith, apart from anything you do, this relationship with God. The other thing that happens is that we have to understand that Paul said it's by grace as a gift. And what basically what he says, it's a gift, it's a gift. It's not merited. You can't earn this thing. Paul's going to spend actually chapters 4, 5, 6, 7 helping you to understand what, this ha- what happened in you when God, when God justified you by faith. But for now, I need you to understand this part. It comes by faith alone. If you don't get that, you're going to drift off into two problems that happen every day in the church. One big word, antinomianism and the other legalism. Basically, living however you want and keeping the law. One of those will pop up in your life if you miss that this is by faith alone. So the first one, the antinomianism, what that means is basically you're thinking, okay, well, you just said, right, doesn't matter what I do. Doesn't matter what I do, I'm in, right? So I can live however I want. The sins in my life, they don't matter. How I live my life, it doesn't matter. What I do for God is already done in Christ, so it doesn't matter what I do. Wrong. Those who are alive in Christ, guess what happens? You're actually alive in Christ. Things change. But the second thing that happens, and this is more common, especially in those who are raised to really try and know this and get this by parents who have been pouring into your life is that you actually start equating your performance with your relationship with God. So that if I tell you, tell me a day when you had a really crappy quiet time and you haven't read the Bible in three months and you haven't prayed in a really long time and you haven't been really kind to your parents and you know what you've been, how you've been treating your siblings. And I say to you, if you appear before the throne room of God, how does God feel about you? Why don't you go pray to him? If you look God in the eye, what kind of emotion is he going to feel about you? And the truth is, for far too many of us, the, the answer is kind of conditional. Like God's going to be a little disappointed in me. God's going to be a little frustrated with me. I mean, you know, like because I haven't done what, I'm, what I know I'm supposed to do. That means you're actually counting on your works for his approval of you. You actually think you're bringing something to the table that's going to raise his acceptance of you or lower it away. So it's weird. We're like, I want to go pray to God. I want to go, I want to go be with God. I want to grow in intimacy with God. And the way I'm going to do that is by avoiding him until I get pretty enough. Then I'll go back to him, which just tells you you've messed up. And what you've messed up is this two word phrase, by faith, by faith. Both of those, the legalism that binds us and the living for ourselves both flow out of this same understanding. You have missed that the righteousness of God is yours by faith. But that doesn't tell us what faith is. So Paul gave us 
Paul, author of Hebrews, sorry, gave us this one. You know it, but look at it. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's what you can hang on to. It's the conviction, the substance of things not seen. So here's the way you have to understand faith. Faith is not something to be understood in itself. Faith is not defined by itself. Faith has an object, and it's the object of your faith that is critical to that faith. It's like a mirror. We don't go to a mirror to stare at the mirror. You go to the mirror to see something by it. It's like a telescope. The telescope is not sitting there just to be pretty and collect dust. The telescope is used to see something. Faith is the telescope and the mirror that gets you to the object of your faith, Jesus Christ. Let me put it like this. If you find yourself thinking about your faith, you've missed it. If you find yourself thinking like, do I have enough faith? Do I have the faith? Am I have the right faith? If you're thinking about your faith at all, you've missed it. You'll know you actually have faith when your brain, your mind, your heart, your emotions are actually thinking about Jesus. Your faith is the tool that gets you to Christ. It's not something for you to stare at, think about, focus on in and of itself at all. We come to Christ by faith. Faith finds its substance in what you're hoping for. And if what you're hoping for is in you, you don't have faith at all. I mentioned Martin Lloyd-Jones at the beginning. He's a great thinker, somebody you can actually still read and listen to. He has a long quote, and it's going to be up here in uh, several sections, and I want you to read it with me. We can put it this way. The man who has faith is the man who's no longer looking at himself, no longer looking to himself. He no longer looks at anything he once was. He's not looking at what he is now. He doesn't even look at what he will become as a result of his own works. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's looking entirely to his finished work, and he rests on that alone. He stops saying, oh, yeah, I used to commit such heinous sins, but now I'm different, right? But now I do this or that. If he goes on saying that, he doesn't actually have faith. Faith speaks in an entirely different manner. If It makes a man say, yeah, I've sinned grievously. I have lived a life of sin, and yet I know I am a child of God. I'm not resting on the righteousness of my own. My righteousness is in Jesus Christ, and God has put that into my account. We're not focusing on ourselves at all. We're focusing on Jesus we're not focusing on how much we believe, on how well we believe, on how rightly we believe. We're not focusing on us at all. We're focusing on Jesus. But you might say, but sometimes I doubt him. Sometimes I sin. Sometimes I'm fearful. Sometimes I'm anxious. Sometimes I forget. Sometimes I don't care. Sometimes someone's up here speaking. I couldn't care less what they're saying. Worship starts. I just want it to be over. I don't have all the right emotions. I don't think rightly. We stare in the mirror of our lives and we grow discouraged. We look at how excited we are about the Bible as a measure of our relationship with God. And every time you do that, I hope you feel as flat as you can feel. Every time you stare in the mirror of who you are, 
so that you gain confidence. I hope it just falls flat on you. I hope it makes you run back to staring by faith at Jesus Christ. Because all that means is that you're putting in your trust in something inside of you. You're trying to find something in you that's worthy when God has already pronounced you worthless. This gospel is not a gospel of self-esteem. It is not about God making you from worthless to worthy. It's about making you from worthless into the worthy one, Jesus Christ. This is not about cleaning you up, making you better, making people more impressed with you, making you more impressed with you so you're a better you. This is about you dying so that Jesus Christ alone lives in you. Him being your only worth, the only thing you have to boast about. That's the catch. We're not believing this blindly, people. We're believing that we can now die because of a singular event that happened in history that sealed it all for us. But if we don't get that event, the rest of this is pointless. Paul puts it like this. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile and you're dead in your sins. Two verses later, he says it like this. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, then this entire room ought to be the most pitied people in the world. If this is all we have, if we get out of this life and we find out we were wrong, Christ was not raised from the dead, he is not the righteousness of God, there is no afterlife, then living this way is stupid. We ought to be going out and eating and drinking because tomorrow we're going to die. The rest of the world that doesn't believe this is living rightly. The only reason to set that entire life aside to lay aside the good works, to lay aside the living for yourself and to give yourself wholly to this is because you believe that Jesus Christ walked out of that tomb. If in this life only we've believed upon him, just pity us. But if we're not wrong, and if there really were 500 witnesses that day during the time, the 40 days he walked, if he really did, if Thomas really did place his hands in those nail holes, if he really did walk along the road to Emmaus and astound them with everything, starting from the very beginning of the Bible going all the way through, if they really did see him, if he really is alive, then by faith he is our life. On your good days, he's all that matters. I don't care how much of the Bible you've memorized, how much of the Bible you've been reading, how righteous all your deeds, how many years you've spent on the mission field. I have all these dear friends of mine who are spending their lives on the mission field to tell people in the most dangerous places about Jesus Christ, and none of it is to his credit. On the best day he has, if he says anything about how great he is, he's done. And then maybe his wife is back at home and maybe she's discouraged. Maybe she hadn't been reading the Bible. Maybe she hasn't been praying. And on that day, all she has is Christ. Whether you're doing the best you can do or you've had the worst days of your life, the hope for you is exactly the same every single day, that Christ himself is your righteousness apart from the law. 
The reason people say this is so important is because if you miss this, it comes every other problem in your life. Like just brainstorming, I named these. Look up here. One more. Just think about this first one. If you miss that this is yours by faith alone and not a, it's apart from your works, has nothing to do with your hands, anxiety comes. Why? Well, because now you're filled with doubts. Now you're filled with fears. Now you wonder about yourself, about your life. Now you're constantly striving to measure up. You're constantly got to keep the law. And if you're not worried about you, you're worried about everybody else around you. You start to watch the, your friends. You start to watch your classmates. And if they do well, you're okay with them. If they do poorly, you start to worry about them. It's because you're watching each other's lives to see whether or not this is true. You're filled with anxiety. You'll constantly stare in the mirror of your own life to see how well you're doing. Or you'll be filled with pride because you won't be staring at yourself. You'll be staring at everybody else. And you'll be just a little bit better than they are. Well, at least you're not like those people at school. At least you're not like that guy. At least you're not like this You'll hold yourself in pride above other people. You'll start to, you know, share all your prayer requests about their sins that you're just really concerned about. And they will lower in your estimation because, you know, they're not where you are. You won't be able to take criticism. This is one of the biggest, one of the biggest ways I know whether or not you understand that your righteousness is by faith alone. It's whether or not you can stand criticism of your character. When someone starts to talk bad about you, are you the kind that's like jumping up? I can't believe that she said that about me. I can't believe they even think that about me. Why? Why can't you believe it? Because you're trusting in you, in who you are, thinking highly of you and how you're made and who you know yourself to be. I mean, sure, you've lied over there, but it's not like you lie all the time. That constant defense of ourself, constantly, constantly throwing off criticism, and if you're not throwing off other people's criticism, you're in denial about your own sin. You act like it's no big deal. I know I shouldn't have said that, but I mean, I probably shouldn't be, but constantly seeking to justify yourself, justify yourself in denial about your sin, refusing to lay it on the table. You'll care about your reputation. You'll care about when people talk about you. You'll care, you'll care, you'll care. And it will all lead to this constant seeking and worrying about your life because you can't ever trust that God's going to be for you. So how are you going to get into college? And what about those grades? And how are you going to get the money? And what about that job? And what about a spouse who will love you? What if he's the only guy who ever loves you back? You will give in to every kind of pleasure, every kind of envy, greed, covetous, living for yourself, because you cannot count on yourself being finished, being done, being complete in Christ. If you have the Father, you have everything that comes along with that. But if you put yourself in the mix of it at all, then from that flows every kind of evil, every evil in our lives. It'll lead us all the way down to what you think of as like addictions, Things like porn, things like drug use and alcohol, they don't come out of a vacuum. They don't come from nowhere. Porn comes because you're seeking your own pleasure. Everything in the fantasy, everything. And ladies, this is for you as well. Porn use is not just naked pictures of girls. Porn use is the fantasy of sexual pleasure for our sake. 
It puts us right in the center, everything about the fantasy, everything. But that's no different than Fifty Shades of Grey. That's no different than Twilight. That's no different than almost every television show out there. They're all trying to convince you of the same thing. Seek your own pleasure, seek your own pleasure, seek your own pleasure. Everything out there will try to convince you to put yourself right back at the center. The reason you'll be drawn back to it is because you'll believe no one else is seeking your life either. But if you come to Christ by faith, apart from the works of your hands, can you understand that in that you are now accepted, not because of anything in you, but because of the work of Jesus Christ for your behalf, which now means you are completely accepted by God, completely. He, everything God is, he is for you. You now have a father, which Romans 8 will tell you that nothing can separate you from his love. There's nothing present nor things to come, nothing in all of creation, neither height nor depth. There's no authority. There's no power. There's nothing you've done, nothing you can do now, and nothing you can do in the future that could ever separate yourself from the love of God that's yours in Christ Jesus, which means you don't have to worry about him being with you. He would never leave you. You don't have to worry about him providing for you. He will give heaven and earth to provide for your life. You don't have to worry about your own protection. He will guard you before and behind to the left and to the right. All that God is for Jesus, he is for you because of Jesus. And you can only have it by faith. Guys, this is why. If you get this, if you get that the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, it's the key that opens up everything else the Bible has been trying to tell you about your relationship with the Father. There's a pastor named R.C. Sproul, and he was giving a talk to 4,000 or so pastors on the sufficiency of Christ's atonement begging them to preach Christ. And he ended it with a phrase that as soon as he said it, it's sealed. If you follow me on social media at all, you've seen a hashtag which came out of the final two words. I've used it for years since I've heard this. And I want you to see it and understand it. Christ Jesus is your only hope. But praise be to God. Guys, he is hope enough. You don't need anything else. I want you to understand this with all of my heart so that you cease striving after what is already yours. Have faith in Christ, not in yourself. Spend the rest of your life understanding what he has done in you, through you, for you, to make you his own. If you know that, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, then you have all you need for this life and the one to come. Let me pray. Father, we're asking that you would take <laughs> such meager words for such a glorious gospel and that you would change them to be something that would be understood by the men and women sitting here, that they would anew discover what has been holding them back from believing that Christ is hope enough for their life. 
when they think through their sinfulness, whether it's through anxiety or whether it's through bitterness, whether it's through unforgiveness, whether it's through addiction to their own pleasures, that you would break open that to help them to understand the connection that they have been bringing their own life to the table and therefore they have been seeking their own out of it. Change us, Father, into people. Do it, Holy Spirit, by guiding us into this truth. Do not let us forsake it. Praise you, Jesus, not only for being just, but for being the justifier, for taking us and making us in you, his beloved. We praise you for it, Jesus, and we ask all of this in your namesake. Amen. Your questions are at the table.